today. Uh, would you uh, take a moment and uh, let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, as always, when we come together, we thank you for this community, this body of believers. We pray that you would uh, bless our meeting, uh, that you would anoint our time together, uh, that you would inhabit the praises of your people. But as we come before your word, Lord, we ask you this one thing, that you would bring it. You would bring it in such a way that, Lord God, that we would respond in kind. And that's the way we want to worship you tonight. We give you thanks and all the praise. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you brought your Bibles today, would you take it out? And uh, if you're, uh, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something kind of interesting. I would like for all of us to stand. All right, everyone in the back. Uh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just standing just for a moment. All right. And uh, if you're standing by yourself, that's okay. Just kind of scooch over to somebody that you may or may not know. And I just want you to turn to somebody and say, God, bring it. Just, just say, God, bring it. All right. Good. Now, you may be seated. I just want to make sure you're, you're uh, you know, awake. Now, the reason I, I ask you to open your, uh, bring your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, whether it's on a, a smart device or if you have a good paper Bible, right? We're going to be, um, I'm going to be talking to you about how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Now, that is a borrowed title of a, a book by D.A. Carson and uh, Doug Stewart. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, and it's actually what it's called, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, but what I'm going to be talking about, they do mention a lot of it, but it's not from that book, just so you know. But I do highly recommend it. You know, a few years ago, uh, we were part of a study called the Reveal Study. It was a nationwide study that had happened years prior to it. They had asked over a thousand churches, what helps you become a better disciple of Jesus Christ? Isn't that a great question? What helps you become a better disciple? They asked some of the best churches across America that, are, that have been doing it really well, over a thousand. And using all that data... They came out with a book called Move, which uh, we've talked to you about. Pastor Rex has uh, shared uh, sermons on that, and I've shared sermons on that. And all the lead pastors across all our locations have shared a sermon on that uh, or two. And we've adopted that as our discipleship paradigm. And what they found out was that as they've asked these, these questions or this specific question, they found out what the most catalytic activities were of the people that found themselves that moved from exploring Christ all the way through becoming Christ-centered, a Christ-centered follower. And they came up with like the top 20 catalytic activity. I'm sure if I asked you in a show of hands, we can probably come up with at least 15 of them. But do you know the number one catalyst for becoming a Christ-centered follower is, you guessed it, is to read the Word of God and meditate on it daily, for daily living. They say that it is such an important catalyst that if we don't engage in that, all the other catalysts might as well just be for naught. But the question is, 
I wonder why we all struggle with it so much. I mean, young people. There's a lot of young people in the congregation. You know, if you're into like game of war on your, on your iOS devices or your smart devices, let me tell you, in the scriptures, there's like stories of war. I mean, you don't, uh, so exciting. Uh, some, for, th- for those of you that like romance novels, you know, and uh, all these like uh, relationships between men and heroes and women, there's a lot of them in the Bible too. But we still struggle to read it. I would suppose one of the, uh, probably one of the top answers to that is that perhaps most of us, if not all of us, struggle with, Pastor, I'm not quite sure how to actually read the Bible. I've been told all my life, read the Bible, but I feel like I'm reading a different language. Well, today, I would like to offer to you a a simple four-step process, a four-step process uh, that may help uh, for someone that may be a beginner or someone that may be even a, uh, a seasoned student of the word. I believe it's a great reminder. Step one, I would tell you, you start with a good translation. Uh, this one I'm not going to spend too much time on. Now, we all have uh, our opinions on, you know, this is the only translation. Right? There's lots of good translations out there. The only thing that I would tell you that there is a difference between a translation versus a paraphrase. Right? A translation versus a paraphrase. Now, if you look up the difference between that, a translation, I guess, technically can be defined as when you take something in one language and translate it into another language. Now, that is a translation. A paraphrase is translating technically a a, a passage or something from one language into the same language. But usually a paraphrase is something like this. In other words, right? When a sentence starts with, in other words, they try to describe what may be written in other ways. That's called a paraphrase. I have chosen the ESV. It is a very good translation. It's probably one of the newer translations. It tends to be a little bit more literal. I believe the NASV, the New American Standard, is probably one of the most literal translations out there. Versus The Message by Eugene Peterson. Wonderful, wonderful Bible. But that is more of a paraphrase. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 18.24 in the NASV, the New American Standard, that tends to be a little bit more literal, says, A man of many friends comes to ruin. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, right? Some of us may have heard that proverb. Now listen to the message. Friends come and friends go, but a true friend sticks by you like family. Now do you see the difference, right? They try to catch the nuance. A paraphrase tries to capture the nuance. So a paraphrase can be read alongside a good translation. So I believe that's where we need to start. Step two observation observation i tell you that we need to do the detective work within our passage within the scriptures i i I want to recommend to you that as you read through the scriptures you try to find patterns repetitions of ideas terms or phrases 
highlight relationships between these phrases or terms, like contrasts, or clauses, like if you do this, then this will happen. You look for those times of observations. Or you... Or perhaps as you read the word, I usually tell people, look, if you find something interesting, underline it. Underline it. Let, let, turn with me to Mark 11. This is a passage we're going to look at more closely a little bit later. Now, this is the passage that all of us know, starting with verse 15, and that most of us know that Jesus comes uh, into Jerusalem. He just uh, triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, and he cleanses the temple cleanses the marketplace. We all know this. But if you read chapter 11, if you observe carefully, three verses earlier, Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, he says. He sees a fig tree. There's no figs on the tree. What does Jesus do? He curses the fig tree. Then we see the passage, verses 15 through 19, where Jesus enters the temple. He gets really upset. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. And then if you continue to read, verse 20 says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, and it was dead. Basically, that's what it says. Isn't that interesting? Now, there's a connection. You observe, you underline, and saying, what does that mean? Why is there such, why did Mark want to point that out, that Jesus was hungry? And let me just tell you, it wasn't even fig season. And Jesus cursed the fig tree for not having any fruit. Before and after. It's things like that that you want to observe. Here's another example. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now here is an interesting uh, passage where Paul starts his letter to the Ephesians. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessings. Now, if you read through the next 12, 13 verses, you will observe that he uses a term eight times. This term, whether it's in Christ or in him, I would tell you that you should underline that. Here's a question. If you're trying to tell your kids, don't do that, do you only say it once? No, you repeat something that you want them to understand clearly. He uses this term eight times. And if you read through the next few verses, he also uses a phrase three times, almost identically. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace, or to the praise of of his glory. You underline that term. You observe that he tends to repeat things that will or may be important. And we find that if you read through Ephesians, that first 14 verses, basically what Paul is saying is, look, you want to answer this question? 
that before the foundations of the world, you were chosen in Christ to the praise of his glory. That all the work that Christ has done was done in him to the praise of his glorious grace. And that the promise of glory that has been guaranteed in the Holy Spirit is done in him to the praise of his glory. Have you ever asked yourself, what is the purpose of my life? I tell you, our life's purpose is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Observation is extremely important. But what does this mean, Pastor? How do you, how do you interpret things that are repeated? What well, this leads us up to step three. Interpretation. Interpretation. Ask good key questions of the text. Look, our goal is uh, uh, this fancy Greek word called exegesis. It's the study of a text to arrive at the original meaning of the original author, which was written to the original audience. And I do want to say, sadly to say, this was not written to us. Can can I say this again? The Bible was not written to us. But it is definitely for us. God and his sovereignty meant this for us. But it was not written directly to you or to me. It was actually written to a people long ago. But in God's sovereignty, he saw it good because we needed to see it and read it and understand it. Well, how do we start in the, uh, the work of interpretation? Well, I learned this one term at seminary that I believe you should know. And I've said, he, said it here before. That context is king. Context is king. And there's um, two types of context I would like to bring up with you. Uh, the first one being literary context. Literary context. Let me give you an example of what I mean by literary context. Let's say you go to a gathering, a prayer meeting, or a praise and worship service, and someone says, man, God was powerfully present here, wasn't he? And you say, mm, mm. And uh, someone will say, you know what the scriptures say? Where two or more are gathered in his name, there will he be also. Isn't that true? Who's used that phrase? Who's used that phrase? Right? Who's used that? Yes. Isn't it true? But can I just ask you a question? If two or less are there, does that mean God's not there? Well, that's not true either. I'm not, I don't believe you believe that as well. But the literary context of that verse and that phrase is found in Matthew 18. If you turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, it's verse 20, where Jesus is teaching. The last verse, he, the last sentence he says, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there will I be also. But if you back up, into the literary context of what he was talking about. Starting with verse 15, if you look carefully, Jesus was teaching about how to confront a brother in sin. That 
if a brother is in, is in sin, you go and confront him so that you may restore him. And if he does not listen to you, take somebody else. And if he doesn't listen to you then, take another two people. And so on and so on. And if he still doesn't listen to you, then you know what? Have the church come and, and, and uh, try to restore him. And even then, if he does not listen to you, he says, have nothing to do with him. And whatever you bind here on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loosen here on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that's when he says, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there will I be also. So should we be using that term, that phrase, in a good sense? Oh, God was here in a powerful way. Mm, Two or three are gathered. Jesus was here. Actually, no. We should not be using that phrase in that context. Hey, when the people are gathered, God was waiting for us. It doesn't matter how many of us are gathered. God is in our midst, period. Amen? Literary context, very, very important. The second sort of context I would uh, share with you is called historical cultural context. Now, this is an important one. Historical cultural context. I'd like to use a a passage, what I mean by that. Uh, Mark 11, if you turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. This is the uh, passage that we opened with. When Jesus cleanses the temple. Now, most of us know this passage as, um, you know, Jesus walks in and he sees people selling stuff in the church. And he's not happy. So he, start, he gets angry. He starts, he starts creating a ruckus, overturning tables. Now, if I asked some of us in this room, why was Jesus so angry? See, if you ask the right questions, you may very well get the right answers. What was he so angry about? I've heard so many of uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, uh, come up to uh, me so many times over, over the last couple of decades. It's like, you know what? Jesus was angry that um, church is becoming commercialized. You know, you start to find Starbucks and, and they're selling coffee. Can I tell you how many people have come up to us and said, you know what? You know, churches should not be selling coffee. It's like, you know, selling stuff in the marketplace. Some of us may have that preference or that conviction. And they will inevitably point to this scripture. Mark 11. Mark 11, 15 through 18, when Jesus comes and cleanses the temple. But can I tell you, can I give you the historical context of what Jesus was angry about? Now remember, he cursed the fig tree. As he entered, and as he was exiting, he saw, his disciples saw that the fig tree was dead. If we learned a little bit about the architecture of the temple during those days, historically, where this marketplace was set up was usually set up in the court of the Gentiles. 
there was actually a court set up in God's temple where they welcomed Gentiles to come and pray to the God of Isaac, Jacob, and Abraham. It literally represented the evangelistic arm of the church. So when the high priests, when the pastors, the people that worked in the church said, you know what, let's make it easier for people traveling to bring their sacrifices into the temple. Let's make it, let's offer them, you know, you can buy your doves and your lambs. I don't think that was the problem. I actually think, I'm just guessing here, Jesus, that's a good idea. That's not a bad idea. Uh, But the problem was where it was set up. That it prevented the other nations to come and find God. You know, when we, let me just take a pause here. If we, as a church at large, not just grace, lose a vision to reach the lost, I believe we have gotten away from what God has meant for us to do and to be. So when Jesus walks into his church and finds the religious system of his day has taken away taken away the very courts where the other nations couldn't come and pray to his father. He got angry. And that's why he said, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have turned it into a den of thieves and robbers. Now, Context will tell us, well, how does the fig tree play into this whole scene? Well, it would tell us very easily that the fig tree represents the impending judgment of the church if we are not about the Father's business. Do you see? How God's word we must take into, when we start to interpret, historical context. You know, there's a a really good example as we talk about good translation, uh, good observation, and uh, uh, good uh, interpretation. There's a really good example that I would love to share with you. And it's found in Genesis 15. If you turn to Genesis 15... I wanted to share with you something that's really, really interesting. This is, an, uh, like I said, it's a good example of all three. And Genesis 15 starts with this verse. Before Abraham was called Abram, God makes a covenant with Abram. And he starts this way. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now most of our our, uh, translations will say exactly that. 
Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Can I tell you the literal translation of that sentence? I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. The actual literal translation has no verb in the second half of the verse. It reads like this. I am your shield, your reward very great. Isn't that an interest, interesting? Now, Hebrew grammar would tell you that, you know what, we got to throw a verb in there. And most translators will say, well, let's, let's put in the, the verb shall be, all right, to be. I will be, you know, your reward shall be very great. Choosing the main subject and the main verb. And I actually wrote a paper on this when I was at seminary. And saying, you know, there is a verb, but it's in the first half of the sentence. And I argued that it should read like this. Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Now, why do you think that I, I believe that it should be read like that? Well, grammatically, there is no verb in the second half. We might as well just take the first verb and attach it to the second half. I will be your shield and your very great reward. Well, we have some proof of this because when Adam and Eve were shunned from the Garden of Eden, the Jewish nation will tell you that the most important thing that they lost at the Garden was God's divine presence. And to tell you the truth, the very thing that we lost at the Garden of Eden event was God's divine presence. We are now separated by sin. So for God to promise Abram, I am your shield, I will protect you. And I will be your very great reward. It was huge that God would promise himself. Uh, but as you continue to read, I believe Abraham kind of missed this. He said, Lord, what can you give me? That's the next line. What can you give me? I have no children. And many of us know this uh, passage where Abraham says, well, I have no children. And, and I'd like a son. And God said, um, I'll give you a son. He's like, you know, I don't have a son. My, all my belongings will go to my servant. He's like, that won't happen. And then God makes what we call a promise. A covenant. A covenant. Now, I'd love to give you a little bit of historical context. When, um, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, when uh, covenants were made, they were usually made... Uh, with a ritual of sorts. Um, it be, usually between dominant kings and vassals, weaker kings. Now, usually when uh, these covenants and treaties were made, uh, they were uh, usually initiated by the vassal. Because, of course, if there was a dominant king, you don't want a dominant king to conquer you, then there would be no negotiating going on. Isn't that Right. So when a covenant would be made, saying, hey, if, can we start, ha have a relationship? And uh, the covenant process usually uh, included a, a preamble, right? They would make a document with a preamble and say, hey, here's our history. This is who we are. 
an historical prologue, and, uh, which kind of says, this is what we've done. This is what I've done. And then it would start to list stipulations, as with any contract. Service is to be rendered to the, uh, the dominant king by the vassal. Things like, if I went to war with a neighboring country, you come be on my side. You fight with me. Those are the types of stipulations. Then afterwards, they would also list what they would call blessings. If you fulfill these stipulations, you will be blessed with rewards. But it's at this part of the covenant that usually they would have also a list of curses. That if you break this covenant, watch out. Watch out, right? And then um, scholars will tell us that they have proof that they would have a ritual, a ceremony of sorts. And even in our scripture, in Genesis 15, as uh, Abram has this vision uh, in the night, after God tells him, hey, take some of these animals, some fowls and some animals, rams, a heifer, he says, cut them in half. So I, I uh, I have some visuals here says, uh, take, take a heifer and cut it in half. Like this. Put it on one side and put another on the other side. Take a ram. Cut that in half. Put one on that side and put the other one on this side. Now in the scriptures it says, don't cut the fowls, but just for our, because you want to see me cut stuff, right? It says, cut this. Put one on one side, put the uh, one on the other side. And just to give you the graphic, I, I bought a watermelon. Because it's red inside. So once he directs, once he directs Abram to cut all these sacrificial animals, he says, put one on each side. Now in ancient Near Eastern covenant rituals, usually what would happen is that the vassal, the weaker king or the weaker ruler would be asked to walk in between these massacred animals, right? As a ritual. And you know what this ritual would mean? It was part of the curses. And this is where we get the term blood covenant. That as part of the ancient Near Eastern ritual of covenant making, There had to be blood. And basically for a vassal to walk through those dead carcasses, he was saying this. If I break any of the stipulations of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. You know, on the way over, I thought, boy, every time we, uh, 
went into mortgage negotiations. Boy, can you imagine if it was like this? But here's the interesting thing. In Genesis 15, it's not Abram that is required to walk through these animals. It's God who walks through. In a vision, flies through these, between these animals. And basically, he makes the promise, Abram, if I ever break a promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Now, what does this say? I tell you, we serve a God of promises. And that God's promises stick. So when God's word says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You can trust that God is serious about that promise. When God, if you read God's word and it tells you, repent of your sins and believe. That no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. You can take him at his word. Because God's promises stick and God's word sticks. But here's the most important part of the process. Step four. So we have, you start with a good translation. You have, you start with observation as you read through the passages. Right? You enter into the interpretation phase with good context. But the most important part, I believe, is the application the application of God's word. Perhaps the most important part of the process is how we apply it. James chapter 1. James uses his own brilliant illustration to make his point of the importance of applying the word of God to our daily lives. Listen to what James says in chapter 1. He says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You know, at the East Greenbush campus and the Half Moon campus, we've engaged in a study through the book of James. And we're in our third week, and we just studied this passage. And we asked the question, how ridiculous is it for someone to look at himself intently in a mirror, and as soon as you walk away, you forget what you look like? It's kind of like you're, you wake up and... You know, you, tr- you kind of roll out of bed. It's kind of that mind over mattress. You know, and then you go to the, the bathroom and you're looking into that mirror and you're like, whoa, man. 
all those hair sticking out everywhere, that's you. All the stuff on your face, that's you. And he says, for you to walk away and forget, it's like you walking away and not doing anything about it. How ridiculous is that? I'm assuming most of us, when we wake up, we look in the mirror, and we assess what we need to do to fix that. Right? Isn't that what it is? It's like, yep, 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 yep. Oh, yeah. How ridiculous would it be we walk away and we think everything is fine? You would never, I would never walk out the door without fixing what I just saw in the mirror. But he uses this ridiculous illustration to make the point that if anyone is a hearer of the word and does not do it, you might as well be that guy or that that woman that looks into a mirror and does nothing about it. And he says, you deceive yourselves. It's equal to nonsense. But to hear the word and also do the word, James says, you will be blessed in the doing. But as we end the first chapter in James, he says, hearing the word and not doing it, he makes this statement. It makes your religion worthless. Wow. Let me paraphrase that. If you know the word and you hear it and don't act upon it, your Christianity is fake. what he says but I understand why some of us wouldn't wouldn't look into the mirror that's God's word because perhaps it reveals sin for some of us it would reveal the hurt that's hidden under years of thickening skin perhaps we're, we're faced with the truth that all our efforts to try to be right have failed in a moment of weakness For some of us, to look at ourselves through the word of God is to admit failure, to admit surrender. And to James, you're right. And for him, it would mean if accepted with meekness, if we could look into the mirror and accept the truth of God, to hear it and do it, and if we can accept it with meekness, he says it could save our souls. Isn't that wonderful? Meekness. We are to receive the word with meekness. I'll give you a little bit of context. In our our James study, we've come to learn uh, that this word meekness was uh, regularly used to describe winning horses. Did you know that? That if a horse would win a race, it was uh, normally called the meekest of horses. Because that horse surrendered and submitted to its master, the rider, the most. And that's how we are to receive the word and do it. Start with a good translation 
observation, interpretation, and most importantly, application. Let's not only be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. You know, according to one of those uh, passed along stories on the internet, it's a story that we've heard here before. An elderly woman had just returned to her home from a church service when she was startled to find an intruder in the act of robbing her home of its valuables. She yelled, stop, Acts 2.38, which reads, turn from your sin. The burglar stopped dead in his tracks. The woman calmly called the police and told them what she'd done. And they came, and as the officer cuffed the man, he asked the burglar, why did you just stand there? All the old lady did was yell a scripture at you. Scripture, replied the burglar. I thought she said she had an axe and 238. <laughs> not sure if this is true or not. It's one of those, you know, urban legends, myths. But I do know this. That the word of God is powerful enough to stop a different sort of thief dead in his tracks. A thief who would steal your joy. Who would steal the truth. Who would deceive you of the new life in Jesus Christ. And that battle goes on every day of our lives. Do you want to draw closer to Christ? Do you want to know him better? Do you want to have victory in your life? Read the word. Study the word. Embrace the word. And put it to practice. Let's hear and do the word. As he promised Abram, do not fear. I am your shield, and I am your very great reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that perhaps some of us in this room have been inspired to study your word a little bit more. Lord, if we were really honest in this moment of honesty and vulnerability, I would think many of us, Lord, would kneel before you and say, Lord, we have failed at this task. For some of us, we may have thought just coming to church services or dropping our Bible on the floor and, and reading one verse would do it. But Lord, would you implant in our hearts and in our lives a hunger and a thirst for your word, God. And as we've learned today, perhaps, a process that we've already known. To observe, to interpret, and to apply. God, plant in us a seed to desire to do it. Change us in the moment, we pray. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come forward.